you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me to James chapter 4 this morning. James chapter 4, specifically verses 13 through 17. Chapel Choir, thank you for leading us, not only this morning, but this past week. You, Dawson, would be proud of these students. You will be proud as you hear them tonight share a little bit of a snippet of what they were sharing that's in greater uh, than, than what you've just heard even this morning. And so just a little bit of a foretaste this morning of what we're going to experience tonight at 6 o'clock as they lead us in worship. I, I really am, am still getting acclimated to understand what does it mean to be the pastor at uh, Dawson Memorial Baptist Church. But I will say a, a very pivotal, and they, they've been pivotal moments where I'm understanding the culture of this church, but, but one of those moments was this past week where I was able to, to be, uh, and I've heard so much about Chapel Choir Mission Tour, and I've heard the culture of that, but it's very difficult for me to understand fully what that is, and so there's a place called City Museum. It's this old uh, place that they've retrofitted to be this, this great place of exploration, fun things for kids and all this kind of stuff. They're on the outskirts of downtown St. Louis, and at the very end of our uh, chapel choir teenagers uh, just playing around, goofing off, having a good time, eating together, doing all those kinds of things. They gathered and they were able to sing for uh, not only the workers that were there, but to sing over all of those. It was as close to it like a flash mob transcendent moment in the midst of a Monday afternoon. And as I was there, I was just, I mean, really and truly, to, to say this to you teenagers, I was, I was thinking to myself, thank you, God, that I get to serve here at Dawson, that this is, a, this is a part of the culture of this church. And so to see them leading boldly, singing courageously, serving faithfully, to be able to see them as bold witnesses, not only through their life, but their words, was immensely encouraging. And there's about 40 adult sponsors that were there with them, and it is just a wonderful, unique culture that is here at Dawson that we know as Chapel Choir. So praise God for that. James chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. It's going to answer a question, can we live confidently in an uncertain world? Is there such thing as confident living in an uncertain world? In James chapter 4, he's going to answer this question for us, but I think it's important for you to be reminded of just how uncertain our world is because we live in this illusion that our tomorrows are certain. We live in this illusion that we can sort of understand and more than even understand that we can navigate life in such a way that what we will to pass will come to pass through our ingenuity and through our intellect, that what we want to happen will happen as long as we have enough plotting and planning and enough momentum behind the intention that what we want to happen is going to happen. But it is important to see how, when we look back upon history, how hindsight gives us this 2020 clarity that the future is always unknown. There is an unpredictability to our tomorrows before us. 1946, there was a movie producer of 20th Century Fox that was asked about the future of this new technology that was beginning to invade every home, which was the television. And he said, he said that I can't imagine that the television would ever catch on. Can you imagine people night in and night out looking at a plywood box? Just a few years after that, 
there was an, a radio executive that was meeting with, at that time, a, a fairly uh, known, but not as well-known, uh, music producer by the name of Brian Epstein, who was the producer in 1962 for the early Beatles albums and the ones that would come after that. And he said, this Decca Records executive said to Brian Epstein, uh, the Beatles have no future in the music industry. Four piece groups with guitars particularly are finished. 1977, Ken Olson, who was the founder of the Digital Equipment Corporation, said that there's no reason anyone would want a computer in their home. 2007, Steve Ballmer, who was the CEO at that time of Microsoft, said, I can't imagine that the iPhone is ever going to gain substantial market share. There is a sense in which our future is always unknown. There is a sense in which the future is always unpredictable. Even when you get the experts in the fields prognosticating on television of what the next six months is going to look like in politics, what the next six years is going to look like with the financial markets, there is a sense with all of our expertise, with all of our knowledge, there is a sense in which the future is not ours to apprehend and to know with crystal clear clarity. Now that can paralyze us or that can be an invitation to trust in the one who holds the future securely in his hands. This is what James would say in light of the uncertain world in which we live in. Come now, chapter 4, verse 13, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there, trade and make a profit, yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Notice with me four truths in light of how we are called to live confidently in an uncertain world. And the first truth that James wants to remind us of is the uncertainty of our tomorrows. The first two verses, James chapter 4, verses 13 through 14, they remind us that we live in such a way that we do not have the certainty of what's going to happen in our tomorrows before us. James gives this hypothetical illustration of a merchant that comes in to a city and says, I'm going to go to this and this city. Now, in the first century world, there was tremendous economic mobility. There was the ability with the Roman government that had paved the way, literally paved the way for transportation in such a way that for such a time as this, God used that transportation and the ability to move from place to place in a way that was really unprecedented in history as a vehicle for the spread of the gospel. We see in the book of Acts, people coming and going. Acts chapter 18, we meet Aquila and Priscilla. We meet them in Corinth. They had just left Italy. They get in a boat in verse 18 after meeting them in verse 2 of chapter 18, and they're going with Paul to Syria. There was tremendous mobility there. We, we meet this uh, seller of purple by the name of Lydia in Acts chapter 16. She was from Thyatira, but she was there in Philippi. We have Paul on his missionary journeys, and you cannot keep up with them unless you have maps in front of you because there's so much mobility that was occurring in that first century world, and merchants 
would take advantage of the economic mobility of the day and the exploration that was going on in that day, and they would go into a, a new city, they would make new contacts, they would do trades, and they would get out of there with a hand, uh, handily profit. And James says, don't, don't imagine that you have all of these intentions about what your future is going to be and you're going to go to this or that city and you're going to make all this kind of money and move on with your life. Living in that kind of way where you don't admit the uncertainty of your tomorrows is bold, but it is more than bold. It is brazen. It is arrogant. It is a sin, James says. And it's important for you and for me to understand that there is a sense that we're all tempted to be our own sovereign guides to the certainty of our future. And we think to ourselves, if we want to do it, it's got to happen because we have decided it to be so. And in many ways, James is critiquing, not that James would have known about this, but he critiques the spirit of a 19th century poet by the name of William Ernest Henley. This, this is what James is critiquing, the words of the poet. It matters not how straight the gate. How charged with the punishments of the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now this sounds like good American pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of ingenuity and and self-will. But James is saying that kind of spirit, I'm the master of my faith. I am the captain of my soul. It is an arrogant, boastful spirit that doesn't take into account that he is God and we are not and his plans are bigger than our plans. There is an uncertainty to our tomorrows. I love the way Sam Alberry says it this way in his commentary on the book of James. He says, as Christians, we know where we will be in a million years. That's in God's hands. And he told us about it, but we do not know with certainty what will happen tomorrow. That's in God's hands, but he hasn't told us about it. There's so many of us in this room that just need to be reminded that we do not control with 100% What's going to happen to us, nor to our family, nor to our prospects for employment, that that we are not the master of our fate. We are not the captain of our soul. All all you got to do is fly to really feel this. I mean, recently I've been on planes more than I normally, and I'm on planes two weeks ago. I had a 7.15 flight that at 2 o'clock in the afternoon got pushed to 7.45. I got that alert, and I said, oh, this is not good. When it, when it gets moved that early in the afternoon, you know, boy, there's going to be some delays. So that 7.40 rescheduled flight became an 8.30 flight. We board the plane. There are thunderstorms that are coming over the airport in Birmingham, and so he taxis us. We wait in line. He's trying to get us into the air in the midst of these thunderstorms, and we wait, and we wait, and we wait, and we wait, and 15 turns into 30 minutes. 30 minutes turns into 45 minutes, and literally, it's like I'm, it's like a movie. You've been in these kinds of planes where the baby's in front of you and the baby is crying. It's hot on the plane. People are kind of upset and we're waiting and waiting. Finally, the pilot comes to the intercom. Everybody thinks, oh, yes, finally. I know we're delayed, but at least it's just an hour and a half delay. And then he says what no one wanted to hear. We are going to taxi back to the terminal. We're going to deplane and you're going to sit back at the gate until we can take off safely. There was wailing and gnashing of teeth 
It was mourning that was occurring on that plane. People were so mad that they could not. I mean, they had plans. We had to be somewhere. We had connecting flights to get to. Surely we could figure something out. We go back in there and everybody's upset. Everybody's going to the gate attendant saying, what about this? What about that? Finally, these two just bold, I thought confident flight attendants get off the flight. They come to the gate and they're just bombarded with all of these questions. And I loved just peering into the way that they were answering the questions. The questions were like, when are we going to take off? One of the flight attendants said, that's above my pay grade. Look outside. I mean, it's storming outside. Look out there. I'm not in control of this. Another person would come up there and say, when are we going to take off? It's above my pay grade. Look out there. Again and again and again and again, they had to say, this is out of my control. This is out of your control. We are beholding to something that is bigger than us. And something about flying can remind us that as much as you think you are in control, a thunderstorm can derail your best laid plans to get to Atlanta and you can be stranded an hour and a half away from your house for 10 hours, and it's the most frustrating thing in the world that can happen to you. There's computer malfunctions that can occur that remind you you are not the master of your fate. You are not the sovereign willer of your future. There is an uncertainty to all of our tomorrows, but more than that, there is a certain fleeting to our todays. Look with me again. In James chapter 4, verse 14, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Boy, this is a perspective that we need to be reminded of. Life is fleeting. He gives the analogy of it being like a mist that hovers, hovers over a lake at dawn. It is gone as quickly as it appears In nature, a mist is not permanent, so there's no such thing as a permanent natural mist. Life is like a mist. It is temporary. There is not a permanence to our life here on earth as we know it. There's only eternity in Christ. Your life, apart from Christ, is fragile. Our life in Christ here on this earth, it is a, a set number. None of us will will live life as we know it eternally here on this earth as we know it. Even in Christ, there is going to be new bodies and a new heaven and a new earth. And there is what is going to await us that is far better than anything we experience right now. But life as we know it, here as we know it, is not eternal. It is not permanent. Some of you have had the the cruel reminder of that as as you've sat on a Monday morning in a funeral home and you're meeting with a funeral home director and you're you're picking out caskets and you're making plans for the order of the worship service of, of the funeral of your loved one and you say to your mother or to your father, you say to your brother or your sister that is sitting next to you, it was just yesterday that I was with him. Just yesterday, I was talking to him on the phone. There is a certain fleeting to our todays. None of us in this room, none of us in this room will live permanently in your residence that you are now. 
None of us in this room will take all of our stuff with us. None of us in this room will, will live in a way that is apart from the reality. Have we trusted in Christ or we've denied Christ? And it's only in the way that we answer that will we then live eternally with him in heaven or with him in his judgment in hell. We do have an eternity that is before us, and in light of the fleeting certainty of our todays, all of us in this room, we must make a decision. Has there been a time that we've trusted Christ as our Savior and Lord to rescue us from the certain fleeting of our todays? There, there is an uncertainty to our tomorrows. There is a certain fleeting to our todays. Now, this could lead to despair. This could lead to depression. This could lead to disillusionment. But as a Christian, the opposite is the truth. This is what James is going to say. James says, what tomorrow holds for your life is not certain, but you can have confidence in who holds your tomorrows. So notice with me that as a Christian, notice with me as one who has been rescued by the finished work of the gospel, that you and I, that we can have a calm trust in God's sovereignty. Look with me again at your copy of God's word. James contrasts the uncertainty of our tomorrows, the certain fleeting of our todays, with the calm assurance of verse 15. Instead, so in contrast to this, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James is going to draw upon the teaching of the Apostle Paul. James didn't have Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. But Paul and James are building sort of a theology of our future. Paul, Paul would say this in light of what James is saying here in James chapter 4. Paul would say, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. 1 Corinthians 16, it comes back to this theme. and He says, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Do you notice the addendum here? James draws upon it. Paul is building upon it. There's a sense that James and Paul are telling us to hold our future lightly, not tightly, that it has to be this way. We hold tightly on to his sovereign plan and his will for our life. Now, this isn't just a mere cliche. Some of you are of a generation where you know that there can be a, a vocal or verbal, excuse me, a verbal pause piece that just says, if the Lord wills, that we can just add on to everything that we say, if the Lord wills, will you go to eat with me tomorrow? I would love to go to eat with you tomorrow, if the Lord wills, or can we go see a baseball game? I would love to go with you to the baseball game, if the Lord wills. Now, there's nothing wrong inherently with saying that, but there's nothing that is prescriptive in this passage that says that that has to be a verbal addendum to everything that we say. It rather should be an inner disposition that guides everything that we commit to, understanding that we commit to everything loosely. We are committed to him fully, understanding that he holds our future. So there's a sense in which this doesn't have to be a mere cliche, and on the flip side of it, it doesn't need to lead us to this fatalistic passivity where we're just passive recipients where we say, well, if the Lord wills it, he'll lead me to the right college and I don't really have to apply to any kind of colleges. I don't have to do good on my ACT because if the Lord wills it, he'll just open up the right doors. 
Well, that's not what James is saying in this passage here. Well, if the Lord wills it, I'll get the right job. I don't really have to apply for things. I don't have to give myself to things because if the Lord wills it, he will cause it to happen. Well, he utilizes your responsibility. He utilizes your intellect. He utilizes the gifts that he has given you to accomplish his sovereign will. So there's a mystery to this, but understand uh, that divine sovereignty does not cancel out human responsibility. All throughout the book of James, we see these, these, these polar, not polar opposites, but these tensions held in balance. And remember that James says that we are called to ask him for wisdom for living. We're called to be doers of the word. We're called to care for orphans and widows. We're called to keep oneself unstained from the world. We're called to not show favoritism. So all throughout the book of James, he is saying, do. Don't just be hearers, be doers. So to say, if the Lord wills, it doesn't lead us to this passive fatalism. Well, I'm going to let go and I'm going to let God. And that's not here in James chapter 4. There is a divine call to your responsibility, understanding that he underscores everything that he calls you to through his divine sovereignty. So notice with me that there's an uncertainty of our tomorrows. There's a certain fleeting of our todays. You as a believer, as a Christian, can have a calm trust in God's sovereignty. And finally, there is a certainty of our call today. Now we might ask, well, what are we supposed to do? Don't you love the way James in verse 17, he sums up so much of what he's been saying in the entirety of the book with verse 17. It's almost as if as he's talked to us about being doers of the word, not just hearers. As he's called us to not show favoritism. As he's called us to seek him for wisdom. Then he comes to the summation of verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. Now, at first glance, this seems, can be, this seems to be just really disconnected from what has come before it. It seems as if there is a party going on in James chapter 4 and verse 17 wasn't invited, but James verse uh, 17 of chapter 4 snuck in the back door, raising its hand saying, don't forget about me, don't forget about me. But in actuality, it's, it's closely connected to all that has come before these chapters here before, excuse me, what's come before in these chapters here. Oftentimes we think of sin as what we do that we shouldn't do, and certainly that is sin. We lie when we should tell the truth, we sin. We gossip when we should be silent, we sin. We choose bitterness instead of forgiveness, we sin. This throughout the church's life has been called the sin of commission, we commit volitionally a sin. God has a line that he tells us is for our human flourishing. We step over that line. We sin volitionally. We commit a sin of commission. Now, on the flip side of that, there is what James is describing in chapter 4, verse 17, the sin of omission. It's not that we just sin by doing what God has called us not to do. There are times that we sin by not doing what God has called us to do. So there are times that we sin by being passive. There are times that we sin by being active. And for a church like Dawson, all of us in this room, there very well may be that there are some of you in this room that are volitionally right now stepping over that line. You're stepping over that line into plotting marital infidelity. And I'm calling you back home. 
There's some of you in this room that, that are in patterns of financial unfaithfulness. You're in patterns where, where you're stepping over a line and agreed, I'm calling you back. But there are many of you in this room that are not at that place. But all of us in this room understand what it's like to know the right thing to do and to fail to do the right thing. All of us in this room face the temptation of knowing with our intellect, knowing with our head, what never makes its way to our heart and our hands. Well, there are many of us in this room that know what it's like to allow the good things of life to crowd out the best thing in life. And you look back through the sin of omission and you see how you've let a lot of good things crowd out your time abiding deeply with God in prayer and in the word. You've allowed good things to crowd out the best thing and you can do nothing without him. And you haven't just volitionally had this long litany of heinous sins, but it's these little commitments to good over the best that have moved you away from intimacy with your heavenly father. There's some of us in this room that we have schedules that have no margin and there's no margin to serve him. There's no margin to, to be in activity for his ministry because there's a lot of good things. We know the right thing to do, but we fail to do it. We sin. There are many of us in this room that know we're called to tithe and to give of offerings, but, our, but we, we've never, while we know it intellectually, we've never put pen to paper and made those commitments. And, and we know the right thing to do, but we fail to do it. A couple of weeks ago, I was coming home from the office, and Daniel said, hey, can you go by uh, McAllister's and pick up something I've called in in order, we were in the midst of baseball, and this kid was going this place, this kid was going this place, this kid was going this place. So we were eating on the run. I stopped by, I look, and I've got one bag, yes, yes, yes. I got another bag, yes, yes, yes. I get it, get back into my truck. And right before I cranked it up, I said, oh, heavens, I, I didn't pay. I mean, I just, I just took it. <laughs> I mean, I didn't pay. I mean, we had a great conversation, but... I didn't hand over any cash, and he didn't ask for it. So my first reaction was, praise God from whom all blessings flow. <laughs> you have provided the bounty of my daily bread here. I will give you gratitude. Well, I, mean, I felt a little, I, I felt that tinge of, what, am I, what, what do I need to do right now? So the initial thought was, is that, I, you know, I've got to go back in there. I've got to pay. I can't just leave. I mean, you know, no, no, I mean, he doesn't know that I didn't pay. Nobody was asking me, but I've got to go pay. But that was coupled with the sense of how do I do this without making a big deal about this? It was kind of crowded one Monday or Tuesday night, and I really didn't want to make a big deal about it. And so I came. Have you ever been in that situation where you're trying to do something really down low and not? So I was just kind of saying, hey, sir, you know, I, I, I didn't pay. And then the, uh, the guy who was checking me out was like, man, this guy's so honest. He comes back in here and he didn't pay. And next thing I knew, everybody at McAllister's was like clapping for me. And the good Samaritan right there, look at this guy. right. You know, so I felt really good about myself at that point. So I had like a Dawson t-shirt on. I said, Dawson Memorial Baptist Church, 820, 940, 11 o'clock. We'd love to have you. No, I didn't say any of that. So I paid and I got back in the vehicle. I got back to the house and I was telling Danielle about it. You know, there, 
I knew the right thing to do. I was kind of nervous to do the right thing, but I needed to do the right thing because sometimes there's a sin of omission. I didn't say any of that, but uh, you get the point of what we're talking about. And she just kind of looked at me and she laughed at me and she said, you know, I paid for that on the phone before you got there. (laughs) So it's like, there we go. Buying, Buying stock in McAllister's right there with the Eldridge family. There, there are so many times in your life and in my life that we, we have little decisions to make. And they're not, they don't seem to be the biggest decisions in the world, but they're, they're just little decisions in the moment where we do the right thing. In, in the moment where we stop long enough to have our busy schedules interrupted by someone who just needs a shoulder to cry on and a listening ear. We know the right thing to do, but do we do it? So often in life, it isn't that we are deciding will we go left, Satan's way, right, God's way. But oftentimes in life, we're deciding will his agenda invade our best laid plans. And I think many of us, this pastor included, miss so many opportunities to be light and to be in proximity, to be salt, because we don't stop consistently and just do the right thing. There is an uncertainty about all of our tomorrows. There is a certain fleeting for all of our todays. And as a Christian in Christ, you can have a calm assurance in his sovereignty, knowing that there are certain callings that he will give you even today. Will you take the time to be interrupted by his divine agenda and prerogative for your life? Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word, the way that it speaks to our hearts. We thank you that in the midst of what all of us understand to be the uncertainty of the days that are ahead of us, that we do not have to be tempted to despair and disillusionment, but rather in Christ we can have confidence that that you hold our tomorrows securely in your hands. May we all live with our hands open to you, not tightly gripping our agenda and our plans, but being open to your leadership and your guidance to be the people that you've called us to be in, in the specifics of our life, in our family, in our workplace. May we say yes to your interruptions for your glory and the good of those we come in contact with. Thank you that we have hope because we know you hold our tomorrows. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to